Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to read something of a split text today, and you'll see why. Matthew 13, we're going to begin at verse 24 and read to verse 30. And then we are going to jump to 36 and read to 43. Now, if you are following along in your pew Bibles, that is going to be on page, I'm there almost, page 1518, it starts right at the top of the first column. Otherwise, uh, you will likely see it on the screens as well. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24. Jesus told them, his disciples, another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now we jump to verse 36, where it says, then Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, which is a title that he designates for himself throughout the gospels. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word, or the world, and the good seed stands for the son of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Matthew chapter 13 actually contains seven parables. And in each one of those parables, Jesus teaches his disciples, and by extension us, something about the kingdom that he has established and is establishing and will come to its completion at the end of all time. And so these seven parables in Matthew 13 are all kingdom-oriented parables. The first, and perhaps the best known, is the parable of the sower, which we studied last year, and that's why we're skipping it this time around. We studied it as it was um, communicated in one of the other gospels. Now, the parable of the sower 
teaches us that, that there is going to be a mixed response to Jesus, and that is illustrated by the, the different types of soil upon which the seed or the gospel is, um, is scattered. In the parable of the weeds, which we read this morning, Jesus teaches us that the kingdom itself is going to be mixed in its character. You have to understand that the disciples believed and expected that when the long-awaited Messiah came, that he would immediately bring judgment upon all unrighteousness in the world. They believed that when the Messiah came, he was gonna fix things immediately and set up his, his perfect, totally pure, totally righteous kingdom right in their midst. Consequently, they needed to be corrected in their thinking. They needed to be corrected with regard to their expectations about what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like during this in-between time in which they and we live. That time between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so in the parable of the weeds, Jesus compares Uh, the world or the kingdom in the world to a field, a field that had been sown with with good seed, with, with healthy wheat, but which then had been sown over with weeds. It's a very interesting story. Now, the servants of a landowner planted a field, and then while they were sleeping, an enemy came and planted this this poisonous weed in the same field. Now, to you and I, that sounds a little bit like kind of a far-fetched and and unlikely scenario. In fact, you know, as we we read the parable, the servants themselves are expecting extremely surprised. They, they never even conceived of the thought that someone would, would come over a planted field and actually plant other stuff, harmful stuff, over that same field. But in this parable, that's exactly what happens. And when the servants begin to observe the wheat coming up from the ground, they are startled by the ratio of weeds to wheat that they see. Now, if this were true to life, and this is true to life, the parables are about things that would be familiar to people. That is how Jesus chose to teach. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty reasonable to expect that there would be some weeds that grow up in a planted field. I mean, no matter how well you've tilled a field, no matter how hard you've tried to, to kind of remove bad things and, and create a wonderful environment for good things, you know, you're going to have some weeds. So it's not the appearance of weeds that, that disturbs the servants so much. It's, it's how many weeds there are in the field. And so this is something of a unique circumstance. The servants can't explain the presence of all of these weeds, which prompts them to ask the landowner, you know, we we can't explain this. Are you sure that you gave us good seed to plant or, or was the seed itself corrupted? Well, the landowner answers. 
he can see that their thought process is going something like this. They're thinking, you know, maybe this stuff was all mixed in with the good seed. Maybe that's why there's so much of it. But the landowner assures them that the seed that he gave them to plant was indeed good. The landowner, and this makes sense because of who the landowner represents, that we'll talk about in a minute, the landowner knows exactly what happened, and so he tells them. He said, you know, someone came into this field under the cover of night, the cover of darkness, and planted all these weeds. And so the servants, I would imagine, after they get over their shock, respond with what seems to them, and I would guess to us, to be a pretty reasonable course of action. They say to the landowner, well, do you want us to go into the field and pull up all those weeds? Which makes the landowner's response somewhat surprising. He says, no. He says emphatically, absolutely not. Because if you do, you could damage some of the wheat. He goes on and says, therefore, I will send reapers at the end of harvest time and they will give, be given the task of separating the weeds from the wheat. So he tells his disciples this is a parable that describes in some way kingdom of heaven. And the first thing I want to point out is, is God's grace here. God's grace to those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God's grace to those of us who are saved. Because the wheat in this parable represents us. It represents believers. And the weeds represent unbelievers. You probably already have figured that out. The fact that God graciously says, you know what? I don't want to risk even one life. I don't want to risk even the tiniest life that I have claimed as my own. Jesus does not want any, any of those whom God the Father has given him for salvation to be snatched from his hand. And that, brothers and sisters, should give us a great measure of assurance in God's grace and how far it extends. We will not be snatched from Jesus Christ's hand because God will not let that happen. He will not let that happen. So, as I said, this parable describes the kingdom of heaven. He, Jesus, the landowner, sows good seed. Many respond to it and grow up in faith. But at the same time, the enemy... The evil one, Satan, is busy working against his kingdom, and don't we know it? He sows wheat among the weeds so that the children of light and the children of darkness are mingled together. Now, naturally, as they came to understand the, the, the mission that, that Jesus was preparing for them, they, the disciples, like the servants Jesus foresaw, would ask him, should we then root out the sons of darkness? As they went out into the world, sharing the gospel, experiencing what the parable of the sower that I briefly mentioned before um, reveals, that, that some people would receive the gospel with joy and that it would be implanted in their hearts and that some would reject the gospel and Jesus Christ outright. When the disciples started to experience this in their mission and in their ministry, they would have inevitably asked, do you want us then to start rooting those people who have rejected you out. 
And Jesus' answer is the same as that of the landowner in the parable. No, no. I will send my angels to make that final division at the end of time. Now, this is a very important lesson that's being given to the disciples here, and it is a lesson for us as well. It is important because we need to to understand the nature of God's present kingdom, that it is not going to be a perfect kingdom in this present age, no matter how hard we work. And it's not going to be a totally pure kingdom either, no matter how hard we try to root out evil. Jesus himself says the perfection and the purifying are for a later time. For now, the kingdom is mixed in character. And so the parable of the weeds shows us that God's kingdom as it exists today, in this kingdom, the children of the kingdom and the children of the evil one are mixed together and they're gonna live side by side. Therefore, believers must be patient and to give themselves to the task of building up the wheat, that is, the building up of God's children. And we are to be very, very careful not to harm those who are already believers and also those who might yet become believers because they too will not be snatched out of Jesus our Savior's hand. And so don't get me wrong, this parable does very clearly state the truth that there will be judgment and condemnation for all who ultimately reject Jesus, which even include probably some who at least visibly look like they're part of the church. However, we are also to remember that judgment and condemnation is not the task that we as believers have been given. It is reserved for the final judgment in that future time, and it's gonna be carried out by angels. What does this do for us? Well, first of all, I think it prevents us from being discouraged. It prevents us from being discouraged when we, when we look out at the world and see all these things that, that we could get down and depressed about, those things that we can criticize about, about how people have turned away from God wholesale in this society. It prevents us from getting discouraged because Jesus tells us this is exactly the way it's gonna be. It's also extremely important because it clarifies what is and what isn't our responsibility. It is not our responsibility to judge and condemn. Our responsibility is to live out the gospel and to proclaim the gospel to others. And so that's actually the third thing it does for us. It focuses our attention on the mission and the purpose that God has given to us, his children, the children of light. And so that said, I think that there are two significant applications to be drawn out of this passage. The first we find in verse 36 to 39 where Jesus actually begins explaining this parable to his disciples. They come to him and they say, we're having a hard time understanding this. And we said that there were reasons for this, that they had some some preoccupations and and preconceptions about what the kingdom was gonna be like. And, And what Jesus taught in this parable didn't really seem to line up with their expectations. 
I mentioned before that they had very specific expectations of the, the Messiah, that, that when he came, he was immediately going to put the, the axe to the root of the tree, that he would bring uh, immediate judgment when the kingdom was established. But instead, Jesus emphasizes to them patience and proclamation. They are to be patient with the reality that the world and the church is imperfect, and they are to focus their thought and their energy on proclaiming the gospel. And so here's the application. When the disciples realized that they didn't understand the parable of the weeds, what did they do? They went in humility to Jesus to have their thinking corrected. Jesus, in turn, honored that and explained the parable to them point by point. And the G, then the, the disciples, in turn, allowed their perspectives to be corrected by the word of Christ. You see where I'm going here? This is an important lesson for us. Because when believers are puzzled about the, the circumstances and, and have questions about their lives, we too must go to Jesus for correction and instruction in our ideas and in our thinking and in our desires and our expectations, etc. And how do we do that? We go to God's word. We go to the Bible. We place ourselves under its authority. We acknowledge its sufficiency. We allow God's word to confront and examine us. We allow our thinking to be tested according to its truth. And we, with humility and gratitude, have our minds corrected according to God's word. And this is so important for the church today. I mean, it seems like so many churches and so many denominations have chosen to, to go along, to, to get along in this culture and in our society. In doing so, they have compromised or, or outright rejected core Christian beliefs in order to make themselves more palatable or more popular in culture. They say things like this, a God of love certainly wouldn't send anybody to hell, would he? Or... God would never be so narrow as to say that Jesus Christ is, is the only way to salvation. Dangerous, dangerous ideas to adopt. Look, if we're not willing to take our thinking and our ideas and test them against scripture, then we are not deserving the name Christian. All of our thinking must be brought captive under the word of God. All of our thinking must be brought captive under the teaching of Jesus Christ. This is step one in Christian discipleship. And it is a great compliment, I think, to the disciples that when they were confused and unsure, they went to Jesus and asked him, tell us what this means. Tell us what we ought to believe. And brothers and sisters, we need to go to the Bible the same way. The word of God is what God has given us. It is his authorized revelation. It is our only rule of faith and practice. It is the standard by which we measure everything else. And we must subject our thinking to the word of God. There is perhaps no more important message to the church in this day and age in which we live. 
Jesus will not allow us to make it up as we go along. He loves us too much to allow us to do that. And the second application, quickly, can be gleaned from the very end of our text. Jesus reminds us that in order for believers to live and minister effectively in this present kingdom, we must do so in light of the final judgment. We must never let the final judgment, judgment day, get out of our minds. So understand that when Jesus tells his disciples to be patient, that they must not go out and try and uproot all the weeds in the field of God's world, he is not saying to them that God doesn't care about sin. He's not saying that God was not one day going to bring judgment against sin and rebellion against him. He is simply telling the disciples that with regard to that part of it, he's got it. He's got it handled. He says, I will take care of it. I am the one who will bring judgment against sin. Justice will be done in the final judgment at the end of the age. Sin will be punished. Righteousness will be rewarded. Meanwhile, we are to focus on the proclamation of the gospel. We are to focus on the proclamation of the gospel because Jesus says in verse 42, in quite shocking terms actually, that unbelief will be judged with eternal comfortless sorrow and eternally incurable indignation against God, against each other, and against ourselves. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is why gospel proclamation needs to be so important to us. So in the spirit of that, Jesus tells his disciples to be patient even with unbelief because judgment is going to be so frightening and hard for those who have to experience it. Brothers and sisters, if our hearts are not broken when we look at unbelievers with all their talents and all their hopes and all their dreams, realizing that it is only hopelessness that lies before them, then nothing can break our hearts. And we are to look at unbelief that way. These people, beautiful, talented, friendly people, they all await judgment if they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Will we tell them? Will we make our appeal? Will we boldly share the gospel with them? Will we do? what God has commanded us to do so that more and more might enjoy his kingdom with us forever. Richard Baxter writes, we must not misinterpret God's patience with the ungodly. God's patience is not an opportunity for us to be apathetic about the final judgment. It is an opportunity for today to take up the task that our Lord Jesus gave us and to boldly share the gospel with our neighbors and our family and our friends and all the earth. It's an opportunity to recognize and repent of our own sins and to turn from them and flee to the Lord, finding refuge in him alone as our savior. And brothers and sisters, if we come to him, we will not only be spared the, the terrible final judgment in this world, we will find ourselves shining like the sun in the glory of the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus promised it. Amen.
Let's bow our heads and pray.